Introduction of Furniture Styles in America. The development of American furniture in the 18th century stands today as one of the pinnacles of human creativity. Thus, house, household furnishings have been vaulted in value and appreciation to some of the greatest in artistic achievements. What occurred in America in the 18th century was a rare combination of available resources, tradition, inspiration, and determination. The forms and structures that resulted remain as standards of design and construction for all furniture that has followed. Designs reflected commerce, economics, politics, social influences, and structures, and in a changing world. There has always been the ebb and flow, the agreement and disagreement between scholars, antiquarians, and furniture makers on the rationale of design and the development of furniture. Only recently, in 1989, when a Newport piece realized over a million and a half dollars at auction, did everyone agree that 18th century furniture was on par with hanging wall art? To these groups, 18th century furniture was art, artifact or craft, but rarely a combination of all three. The antiquarian benefits the furniture maker by pointing out the aesthetic points that differentiate a great expression of style from a mediocre one. The antiquarian perpetuates the importance of form in furniture and how that form applies to the style determines its merit. Ornamentation does not necessarily make a great piece, nor just because something is old should it be worth venerating. Historians and antiquarians have a sense of evolution of design and how world events shaped it. Also, they both understand the patina, how the effects of time determine color of surface and the reverence that period pieces attain over centuries. The five names of the major categories of American furniture and decorative arts are more likely to be represented of a desirable look with common distinguishing factors. Some of the finest examples of these period pieces were crafted with simple hand tools two or three centuries ago, thus highlighting the craftsman's skill as designers as well as builders. This work took place in, in simple utilitarian workshops, some averaging a mere 15 by 15 feet. To build furniture by traditional methods, to give furniture a soul, they had not just to work with wood, they had to love it. The origin and evolution of American furniture styles is derived from continental Europe. American furniture reached its highest level of development in the 18th century. Its basis was molded by aesthetic trends created by global commerce, political alignments, evolving social customs, market forces, and the ingeniousness of the American craftsman. The development of American furniture during this era had its origin deep in the previous century. The American craftsmen used English design of the 17th century as a starting point. Back then, English tastes were influenced greatly by those of continental Europe, especially France. Hence, much of the discussion of American furniture of the 18th century points to the other lands during other times since it was there that the American furniture had its roots. To define 18th century American furniture is not easy, but it's clearly recognizable to those who have a passion for and have studied the subject.
American craftsmen, inspired by the English styles, infused a purity of line with refined proportions in their designs. English pieces contained undue ornamentation or uninspired appearance that symbolized most European work. American work contained clarity that was missing from the English pieces from which it was based. American furniture design contained refined simplicity, but simplicity of design should not be confused with simplistic designs. The refinement denotes optimized form. Early in the 18th century, American furniture makers developed a distinctive style based on refined and well-proportioned forms. Even the more highly ornamented American pieces had at their core carefully proportioned and symmetrical designs. The Jacobean period, 1607 to 1690. In 17th century England, profound transformation took place on all levels of society. New ideas, goods, and demands for consumer products fueled the growth of enlightened artisans. These artisans functioned as the manufacturers of today, choosing from the increasingly new and diverse supply of raw materials to produce finished goods for both England and her colonies. With increased prosperity and continental influence, the results became evident with the restoration of Charles II. In May 1660, Charles II returned to England from his exile in continental Europe. Fleeing after the death of his father, he stayed away for 10 years while England was under the rule of Cromwell. Charles brought back with him a resurgence of restoration of art and culture. His 10 years abroad now influencing the prevailing taste at court. For over 20 years, England had been languishing in a cultural depression and a stylistic slump. With the Restoration, England was able to embrace some extravagances that was suddenly inundated with the most fashionable taste of the French court of Louis XIV. New trading partners began to develop and flourish in England. Many Dutch craftsmen began to migrate to the upstart England. Dutch furniture makers, who previously were exporting their wares to England, began to move there. The English furniture-making business was suddenly bustling and the growing demands from the prosperous and the style-conscious English. After the 1666 London fire, craftsmen grew to four times their size and numbers. With the enormous need before the Restoration, English built furniture, which was the same for centuries, a squirmish plan, mortise and tenon style. Now, frame and panel sides became dominant with this coming to be known as a Jacobean period, from the Latin origin of James. James I was king during the first quarter of the 17th century, and the predecessor of the ill-fated Charles I, the father of Charles II. The Jacobean style comprises the first three quarters of the 17th century. This period is characterized by oak, straight frame, and panel construction, with decoration limited to surface carving of the panels, and some with applied ebonized geometric shapes or half-turnings. The late Jacobean and Caroline period refers to the period from the Restoration until the ascendance of William and Mary in 1869. This period includes the rule of Charles II and James II. Chest of drawers, cabinets on stand, tall case clocks, and fall front writing cabinets were the newest forms of furniture that followed the end of the Restoration.
Walnut took the place of oak as the wood of choice for fine furniture because of its warm color, attractive grain, and workability. This transitional period saw the Dutch furniture makers develop scrolled legs, ball feet, extensive carving, and inlaid marquetry. The late Restoration Dutch influenced the construction of a new spectacular furniture piece, the court cupboard. These pieces were virtually complicated with strong horizontally layered elements and exceptionally bold, full of half turnings that were ebonized. These pieces were made to stand in the most important room of the house, symbolizing wealth and social status. Also, period tables now featured turned legs and stretchers with little other ornamentation. Seating furniture changed. Among examples of seating furniture of notoriety are the joint stool and the wainscot chair. The stool is comprised of four turned legs, splayed or straight, held together by stretchers and a one-board seat. The wainscot chair was built of traditional frame and panel mortise and tenon construction. The elements of turned chairs were all derived by using the lathe. The visual differences between the two is that the beauty of the wainscot is the surface while the turn chair is its silhouette. A refinement of the turn chair was a Cromwellian, which featured an upholstered seat and back. Comfort began to find its way finally into the equation of furniture construction. Drawer construction was based on the use of rosehead nails, the basic box was nailed together, and the bottom nailed to the box. The drawers were side hung with a horizontal groove cut into each side to receive a runner. In general, Jacobean furniture was obligated to maintain a low, solid, and horizontal format that was indicative of the style. Carving embellishment on flat surfaces was botanical in nature, derived from Renaissance forms. These forms being highly regional, these carved pieces were likely to be finished with boiled linseed oil and clear wax as they were to be painted. Deep reds, blues, greens, and ivories. These colors were achieved by many naturally occurring pigments with linseed oil from flax. The William and Mary period, 1690 to 1725. Both Dutch and Portuguese cabinet makers assigned to the court were instrumental in incorporating their new foreign influences and helping to synthesize the next new style. These craftsmen were privy to the extensive trade of their prospective countries with the Orient. Their newly developing skills were marquetry and lacquer work done under the reigns of Charles II, James II, William and Mary, and Queen Anne. The objective of these cabinet makers was to continue furniture development and keep the royal family in the latest taste and style. At this time, the renowned carver, Grinling Gibbons, 1648 to 1720, came into prominence. Coming from Holland, he set a standard in late Jacobean ornament, with his carved designs continuing into the William and Mary period. Simultaneously, many French Huguenots fled from France with the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. These craftsmen brought to England a decidedly French taste in the styles of Louis XIV and introduced many details that were to become synonymous with the William and Mary style. These details most notably included 
cross stretchers, and the turn leg in the trumpet and inverted cup shapes. Two factors that set the stage for this newly developing William and Murray period were foreign influences and the Baroque ideals. The Baroque side of the equation, 1600 to 1750, called for more verticalness and ornamentation. Thus, court furniture makers were building taller and taller pieces to fill increasingly cavernous interiors of palaces in England and continental Europe. Chests, instead of being stumpy, became nearly squared and full of drawers. Some chests were put on stands to give height. Chairs became verticalized and their crest rails becoming ornate with carved designs. Turnings on legs became dramatic. Aprons and stretchers, for the first time, became decorative and not just functional. Highly figured veneers began to be used. These new design factors merged nicely into the emerging style. Where one, to look intensely into the stylistic infusions, one can link them to two specific countries, Spanish feet, delicate turnings, and the colonnaded basis of high chest were Moorish in nature and relate to England's connections with Portugal. Scroll legs, trumpet and ball turnings, and inverted cup-shaped turnings used for legs are traced to the Dutch and earlier French designs. Trade with Africa, India, and China inspired the use of figured veneers. The design and function of brass poles were influenced by the Orient. The major important contribution to the Weeman Mary period was the dovetail joint. This utilitarian joint enabled drawers to be built of very thin wood, and this meant for the first time they were no longer needed to be nailed together. Case pieces could be dovetailed together as well, superseding the frame and panel method that had been the basis for the Jacobean pieces. The lighter construction facilitated by the joint enabled chests to be taller, thus allowing designs to be synonymous with the Baroque. At first, the dovetails were large and crude, possibly only one or two on a drawer corner. Then, as time progressed, they became smaller and more closely spaced, allowing the drawer parts and the case sides to become thinner. The William and Mary period also brought a proliferation of new table designs. Dressing tables, termed lowboys in the 1800s, served as a function of a chamber table where personal effects could be held, used in the same room as a high chest. It is not uncommon to find a dressing table and a high chest to be a matching woods and design. Additional tables spawning during this period were the drop leaf, the gate leg, or folding wing tables, and tavern tables with fixed stretchers. With the advent of the William and Mary style, the Baroque ideals were reinforced with upholstery, adding comfort to seating furniture for the first time. Chairs grew more delicate, with refined ornamentation vertically. Fully upholstered easy chairs became chic, not just for comfort for the aged. Sofas, an offshoot design of the first easy chairs, taken from the French chaise longue, turned into furniture for relaxing, not just sitting. Chairs also received new verticalists in their, through vertical balusters and slats, caning or leather upholstery. The Sima curve rear posts were developed toward the end of the period, giving additional seating comfort for the back. Case construction continued to be honed and developed using sliding dovetails for ribs 
and dovetail case construction. This period also saw the use of attached parts, such as moldings and feet, which seemed to reflect an increased acceptance of the use of glue and nails. These were no doubt more readily available and of better quality than they had been in the previous century. Drawer construction saw a bottom sliding into a groove instead of being nailed to the bottom of the sides. Sophisticated decorations came in the form of decorative veneers and burrs. These surface decorations needed an above-surface clear finish to better show them off. In the past, oil and wax were used. Now the development of varnishes as a hard, clear, decorative, enhancing surface finish. Also, a full repertoire of molding profiles became standard. The Cove, the Sima, the Taurus. With all these stylistic and architectural changes, a builder with more sophistication than just a joiner was now needed. This period became the origin of the total furniture maker. The Queen Anne period, 1725 through 1760. Peace, along with prosperity in England, and her colonies forced the merchant middle class to demand a prodigious increase in products from tradesmen and artists. With this increase in prosperity came improvements in the standard of living, with aesthetics in personal possessions and homes reflecting that success. This prosperity enabled the decorative arts to continue to evolve and thrive. The success of people of the 18th century were expected to be a part of a polite society that exuded grace, charm, self-confidence, and poise. There was an extension of this attitude into their furnishings as well, which were chosen to reinforce and to be a testament to the refinement of their owners. Fine furnishings were less a display of wealth than the accoutrements of a refined and elegant lifestyle. The Queen Anne period continued the trend as a loftier Baroque style. Hence, the style balanced mass and space, making the size and shape of the space between components as important to the overall design as the components themselves. Equally important was the more complete integration of the Sima curve into furniture. This shallow S-shaped curve was worked into pediments, apron shapes, and most importantly, cabriole legs. These styling characteristics were inspired by trends in Europe and the Orient. Architectural design also played an important element in defining this new style. The Palladian school of design continued to be followed, resulting in a quieter development of the Baroque style in furniture. The classic molding profiles were revisited with now an open eye toward the beauty of clean lines. Cabriole legs, which were based on animal legs, exemplified the graceful curves of the new French bull style and the simple elegance of these Chinese pieces. This combination with remnants of the Flemish scroll legs yielded the familiar cabriole leg around 1700. These new legs enabled the Queen Anne style to continue the vertical visualness to loftier heights. The result was that the pieces became higher and appeared lighter. Slender legs replaced colonnaded stretcher bases. Bulging, squat feet were replaced by short cabriole or bracket feet. 
thus exuding effortless grace. Other notable design features, the use of carving was reduced. Reduction of burl veneer to planar veneer. Curved pediment tops with finials emerged. Visual interest shifted from surface to shape. The thickness of components changed from one-eighth inch here or there, visually lightening pieces immensely. Makers purposely produced shaped components to leave eye-appealing voids, also giving lift to case pieces. Walnut was the wood of choice, with most being imported from France. But in 1820, the supply became quite short when France put a ban on exports due to tensions with Europe and England. West Indian and Central American mahogany filled the walnut void, with its density better suited for increased carving while providing a deep, richer surface. Pad feet, the norm in the beginning, but then gave rise to the ball and claw feet in the end. The use of well-balanced shells became common. At this style's height, plinths and pilasters became fluted, and pediments became arch and architecturally rendered moldings now finding its way into furniture design. With case goods in general, bracket and bandy feet with overlapping drawers became the norm. As far as slant front desks were concerned, the interiors became very complex and sophisticated. Interiors were designed for the pieces as a whole, containing an array of drawers and doors, complete with shaped and carved fronts. This became the perfect place for the cabinet maker to exhibit his consummate skill and for a client to show their exquisite taste. As tea drinking became more fashionable in the 1720s, a newer form of dedicated tables developed, the tea table. The earlier tables were rectangular in form with extension slides for increasing the serving area. Toward the end of the period, even smaller tripod tables began to be used as tea tables. Their tops were hinged so they could be put up when they were not in use. What is known as a birdcage mechanism was added, allowing the top to tilt and turn, hence making serving much easier. Another new table form in the Queen Anne period was the side table, about three and a half to four feet long. It had no drawers. This was today's console table. This table became the forerunner of the sideboard. Increased wealth brought more leisure time and social interaction. With card playing becoming very popular, this gambling phenomenon started to spread in France and spread to England, eventually to America. The affluent could afford to have a table built for just that purpose. The table was generally made of the latest styles, featuring felt or leather playing surfaces, dish chip pockets, and recesses for candlesticks and beverages. The drop-leaf table went through a physical evolution. Gone were the elaborate assemblages of legs and stretchers, replaced by four cabriole legs, two of which swung out on hinged frame members to support the leaves. Instead of the leaves and a top having 90-degree edges where they meet, a new joint was developed, the roll joint. This new joint concealed the steel leaf hinges by placing them within a quarter-round molding, in the table section, which fit into a co-molding on the underside of the leaf. For the first time, 
Thought was being put into the design and development of seating furniture, primarily by the use of the Sima curve. The back splats were now conforming to the natural shape of one's back. And as stated before, the positive and negative visual shapes were continuing to develop. While not the norm, some examples used block and turn front feet with either ball or Spanish type feet. Cabriole legs were used. They were well-rounded in cross-section supporting either a square seat or a rounded compass seat. Each would have a separate upholstered seat frame that would drop into place. As far as regional variations in the colonies go, Philadelphia makers and their clientele were readily willing to embrace the latest English designs, while the New England merchant was more comfortable to apply the influences of those designs to his existing pieces. The Chippendale Period, 1760 to 1785. With this style, the elite continued their quest for elegant surroundings. What had previously been expressed through elegance increasingly became defiance as opulence. The Thomas Chippendale era is when grace gave way to strength and understatement, yielded to bold presence. With the rise of an American aristocracy, the Palladian style quickly evolved into something quite different, the Rococo or Rococo. In general, the two terms, Chippendale and Rococo, are synonymous. The Rococo is more a style of ornament than a style of furniture design. This style relied on the applied furniture ornamental carving over the flowing Queen Anne designs. It is based on natural forms, foliage, flowers, fruit, shells, and streams of water, appearing laissez-faire and relaxed in form. Baroque used many of the same ornaments, but arranged in symmetry. Rococo, being totally asymmetrical, utilized scrolling leaves, vines, and natural curves. Like most English styles, the Rococo was transplanted from France, where it had been developing as a number of forms of ornament since the death of Louis XIV in 1715. During its development in France, Rococo ornament became synonymous with the Louis XV style. The young nobleman who made the grand tour of European cities as part of a cultural education were no doubt exposed to the height of the Rococo style. The French furniture that had been developing in France since 1750 offered a refreshing change and the English devoured it. What also helped to develop the Rococo style was Europe's fascination with chinoiserie, and the Gothic revival style. Chinese designs elements were admired in part because they were fanciful and therefore wholly foreign to the English. They evoked images of strange places where the people, architecture, and landscape seemed unworldly. The English Oriental style artists offered fanciful interpretation of Chinese design, Rococo ornament had no connection with Chinese motifs, but it appealed to the same kind of fascination with fantastic designs. The Gothic revival also helped shape the Rococo umbrella by providing inspirations from pointed arches, trefoils, sinkfoils, and cluster columns. Thomas Chippendale's publication, The Gentleman and the Cabinetmaker's Director of 1754, 
was his greatest contribution to furniture design. The director was the first guide of its kind to acknowledge the importance of furniture design as a field in itself. His director combined and interwove the three new styles of Rococo, Chinese and Gothic. The book allowed non-mainstream cabinet makers to immediately enter the latest design vanguard. Mahogany was the wood of choice. Chippendale's Chinese designs offered geometric, solid, and pierced fretwork motifs on rectilinear European pieces. In England, the ball and claw foot faded into the French Rococo scroll foot, while in America, the ball and claw foot was just gaining favor, almost 20 years later. The ball and claw motif was the Chinese origin, exemplifying the balance between the opposing forces of good and evil, as represented by a dragon's claw clinching a pearl. The pearl, a perfect sphere, representing purity, wisdom, and truth, is guarded by the dragon from the forces of evil. American Chippendale took plain Queen Anne pieces with straight fronts and experimented with serpentine, block front, and Bombay designs. Drawer fronts were now highlighted not with lips, but with cock beating, either on the drawer or the front of the case. Case pieces in general assumed a more solid, stronger appearance and were larger than their counterparts. Pieces now looked more powerful than heavy. High chests became wider and more massive in appearance, with shorter legs resulting in less space below. The pediments gained flowing carved details. Chamfered, quartered, reeded, or fluted case corners began to appear. Straight stretchers, tea tables changed to carved up sweeping across stretchers supporting a central finial. The plain Queen Anne tripod table now saw fully carved pedestal and legs. The round top became scalloped or pie-crusted. Now styles of dining chairs curved back instead of the Sima curve. Chippendale chairs grew ears as opposed to the typical Queen Anne rounded crest rail. Now upholstered sofas reached their stylistic peak with serpentine backs and fronts. With sweeping arm and conical rolls, and build, thus building a highly elegant form. During this period, hardware evolved into larger brass pull plates, some pierced and with escutcheons. The Federal Period, 1785 to 1810. The last third of the 18th century saw another major change in European and American furniture design. This recent trend was the rejection of Rococo and a return to designs inspired by classic art and architecture of ancient Greece and Rome. The neoclassical style was in response to the evacuations of Herculaneum and Pompeii. Rome became a mecca for archaeologists and scholars, as well as designers and architects. With renewed interest in the classics, the English and European aristocracy collected and displayed ancient artifacts along with paintings and artwork in their grand homes. Architect Robert Adam was the most responsible for introducing this neoclassical taste to England. From his visits to the ruins, he returned to London with first-hand knowledge of the classic forms. 
With Rococo waning, Robert and his brother James issued a series of engravings of their many newfound designs. The new style replaced cabriole legs with slender, straight, taper legs, or straight legs ending in plinth feet, termed Marlborough. The swelled shapes of case pieces were amplified to a semicircular or semi-elliptical shape. The lift and delicacy of Queen Anne had returned, but in a very different form. The most notable of the new ornaments of the Adams introduced was the urn shape. Urns were freestanding as finials. They were applied as composition ornaments. The use of oval and circular inlays became very popular. The lyre shape was illustrated and developed into their chair backs. Also, from ancient architecture came fluted legs, friezes, swags, and festoons. Carving went out of vogue, while marquetry became the predominant form of surface decoration. Contrasting woods and shapes were used. The new Adams designs covered all areas of the decorative arts. George Heppelwhite, a London cabinet maker, followed Adams' neoclassical design closely in the furniture shop he was building. He published the Cabinet Makers and Upholsters Guide in 1788. The guide contained over 200 designs of furniture that Heppelwhite's firm created over the years. The drawings represent a wide variety of assemblage of popular neoclassical forms he built in the Adams style of straight taper legs, often ending in spade feet. He also followed these principles by keeping case heights short and legs long and slender. His guide was so precise with regard to decorative veneer, marquetry design, grain decoration, and string inlays with figured crotch and swirl veneer being quite evident. Heppelwhite chairs evolved from ovals into the shield back, He began to build practical considerations into pieces such as sideboards by installing drawer dividers, applying silverware lining, and using a drain valve for an applied urn to hold water for washing glasses on the sideboard. Notable developments of the Heppelwhite era. Number one, squared taper legs, French feet. Two, semi-curved case facades. Three, plain leg surfaces. Four, applied inlay to neoclassical forms. Five, incorporated mechanical design for practical uses with his furniture. Six, sideboard development. Seven, development of a new style of dining table, a style of table that could be shortened or lengthened actually three tables in one. Number eight, a lolling chair. Number nine, evolution form from oval to shield back chairs. Thomas Sheraton was the third dynamic contributor to the melting formation of the federal period. At various times in his life, he was a cabinet maker, artist, inventor, author, publisher, mystic, and Baptist preacher, to name a few, and more often than not, a combination of them all. His claim to fame was the publishing of the drawing book. Sheraton took the new Adam-esque taste to a higher level of refinement. His and Heppelwhite's designs are very similar, but Sheraton's drawings show more delicacy and a more refined use of ornament. 
notable developments of Sheraton. Number one, tapered turn legs with flutes or reeds. Number two, semi-elliptical case facades. Number three, developed cylindrical desk lids and ends. Number four, straight or spiral reading or carved foliage on legs. Number five, integrated both carved, inlaid, and turned decoration into the form. Number six, developed the work table with a fabric bag suspended below. Shared developments of the two of Hepplewhite and Sheraton. Number one, flush fitting drawers with cock beating. Number two, dressing tables became extinct. Number three, high chest turned into chest of drawers. Number four, introduction of a secretary drawer desk. Number five, introduction of a tambour desk. Number six, sideboard development. Number seven, both developed their own style for the sofa and chair. The federal marquetry ornaments came in the form of fancy veneer, inlaid shells, rosettes, banding, or stringing. Hence, the federal style was born of these three men during the Revolutionary War. This recovery included increased prosperity with a readiness to adopt the newest fashions in the decorative arts. During this recovery, some secretary, secondary cities arose to prominence. The word taken a heavy toll on the established urban centers. Now, Providence surpassed Newport in business activity. Salem grew as a secondary port to, to Boston, and Baltimore flourished in the shadow of Philadelphia.